I'm Dylan Stafford, and welcome to Drive Time, UCLA Anderson's podcast about some of the most interesting and ambitious people in our community. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. I have a very special guest uh, today. Kate Greenberg is um, is a is an alum of FEMBA. Ten years after graduating, she has led a remarkable career, and she is zooming to us from. Where are you, Kate? Where are you? Tell them. I am in McLean, Virginia, which is just outside of Washington D.C. From all the way across, uh, this is a COVID bicoastal Zoom interview, and I'm thrilled to get to share Kate's story. I think it's a story of um, possibility that the MBA is a unique graduate degree that can open very different doors, not just across the board, but even within one person. And I think you're going to see as you get to hear Kate's story, how she left the comfort and security of a a great role at Disney to pursue two separate careers, which brings her to where we will catch up with her story today. Kate is the chief marketing and development officer for the Washington Nationals philanthropies. So the Washington Nationals baseball team, their philanthropic arm, chief, uh, marketing and development officer, that that role is held by Kate. And one of the things that you'll get to hear is this is a role that didn't even exist 10 years ago when she graduated. So, oh, the places you'll go and how did she get there and what did she do that maybe I could do? Um, those are all the things that I really want you to hear. This is a this is a double Bruin. This is a double, double Bruin story. There's, there's a husband in the mix who uh, we met in undergrad who has a couple degrees from UCLA. Kate herself has three degrees from UCLA. So there's just so much um, in her story that's that's the power of UCLA, the power of Anderson, the power of building a life with a partner and making choices and making adjustments. So I, I just think there's a tremendous amount of inspiration and some real actionable mental frames. We're going to hear some of her best advice that was given to her along the way, one from a family member, one from a corporate person. And, and how she's really taken that to be where she is now, which is reinventing philanthropy mm-hmm. and what it was like to have already been reinventing philanthropy in front of these three recent shocks of, of COVID, of the economic downturn, and now the, the racial inju- injustice, which is being brought to everyone's awareness in such an impactful way. And how does a modern organization have the credibility to respond and respond effectively. And there's some wonderful stories we're going to tell. So that's that's designed to keep you listening all the way to the end because you're going to learn a lot of great stuff from Kate. So Kate, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So why don't we uh, just get people oriented? So, you know, what's, what's the Kate Greenberg backstory? Where'd you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your family before UCLA, and then we'll get into UCLA and beyond. I grew up in Bakersfield, California, which is about 90 miles north of LA. I knew I wanted to go to school in California. I thought I wanted to play soccer. Then I realized that the places I could play soccer weren't nearly as good schools as the schools I wanted to go to. So I narrowed my search. And I remember when I used to get admissions in the mail, Kids don't get that anymore. They get it online, but you used to get the big envelope and the small envelope. Oh, yeah. Remember that? 
that made me feel old, but you used to get the big envelope and the small envelope. And I got the big envelope for UCLA. And my mom told me that as soon as I got that envelope, she knew that's where I was going to go. I didn't know it yet, but she could tell by my reaction and the way that I talked about it, the UCLA was the place for me. And I was already interested in the school and in the campus because my older brother, I have one older brother, he was already attending UCLA, wasn't far from home. And I knew that it would have degree opportunities that would be appropriate for what I was interested in. My mom worked in public affairs for an oil company in Bakersfield. I saw what she would do. She was on the news talking about issues related to her company or community work that her company was supporting. She would help executives and engineers within her organization work on messaging for key reports they were doing, speaking opportunities that they had. She was the president of the local Rotary chapter. And I saw everything that mom did and I thought, well, I could do that. That seems interesting. And so I decided to major in comp studies added a sociology degree along the way um, in undergrad, but I knew I could have opportunities at UCLA to help get a career in communications. That was what I thought I wanted. And that's what I, some people don't know what they want to do. I knew what I wanted to do. I was able to do what I wanted to do. And then so much more along the way that I didn't even know was possible. And some of it Dylan, as you said, didn't exist. It was certainly when I started in undergrad and even when I graduated from Anderson, the job I have today didn't exist. So that's a little bit about me and where I'm from. And how, how many extra units does it take? Because many people have obviously a major and a minor. How many units do you have to add to your undergrad experience to earn two undergraduate degrees at UCLA? Probably a quarter or two. Um, sociology and communication studies have a good amount of overlap, which was part of my motivation. I was very interested in sociology once I started taking those courses as part of the comm studies major. I also, I don't know if this is still true, but comm studies was in, as it was an impacted program. So I also wanted to have a backup plan in case I didn't get into that major. And when I did, I was already well on the path to completing all of the coursework for sociology as well. So I decided to do both because I enjoyed the coursework for sociology. I was down that path anyway, just in case I needed to be. So I decided to do, to do both. Your father has a university. His career was in academe, right? It was. He has a master's in library science, having studied at Indiana University and moved around to a number of universities before becoming the director and eventually the dean of university libraries at Cal State University, Bakersfield. Oh, excellent. Okay. I, I have a history of going on campus. It's a much smaller campus, but going on campus. And my dad had a really cool experience in his career of having the opportunity to build a new library for Cal State Bakersfield, and he was able to build a world-class library for a university of that size. He was able to build an incredible facility um, that felt like something that you would experience at a much bigger school. Um, so that was really cool to be able to go on campus, go in his library. I was very popular for group projects in high school because my dad could check out all of the books and they didn't have a return date on them. So whatever we needed, Dad could check them out and we didn't have to give them back until we were good and done with them. So it was very popular. He could help us get study rooms that came in handy. Oh, that's excellent. I don't know if anyone can appreciate, you know, now that we live in the Google world, uh, but there was a time when library books and return dates that those, those are high class perks. Yeah. 
Okay, so so your your mother had the corporate career. Your father was a university administrator. Your big brother comes to UCLA. So you chose UCLA. You came. You earned your two degrees, your two undergraduate degrees, and you met a certain someone who's still with you along the way. I did. I met my husband probably about halfway through college. We had had mutual friends and mutual coursework along the way, but didn't really know each other. Um, and then we we met, ended up taking classes together. He was also a comm studies undergrad major and decided that um, he started his career in journalism and I wanted to work in PR. So we were on opposite sides of the spectrum, um, the flack and the reporter. Uh, but we decided that would work out okay. And uh, more than 15 years later, here we are with two kids um, and, and actually now five degrees between us because he also did his postgraduate studies at UCLA earning a JD from the law school. So now were you married Let's see. So, so help help people understand the sequence. Did you get married and then do graduate degrees, or kind of a little of both? Who, or did you go at the same time, or did you go sequentially? Um, a little bit of both. So we uh, married shortly after college. I had worked for a couple of years, about three years, before applying to Anderson. Anderson was the only place I wanted to go. I applied to Irvine because it had a new program at the time. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, to explore that as an option and true story i started and stopped the application for usc multiple times and i couldn't finish it because i just couldn't go there i don't know if you can use this in the <laughs> podcast but i couldn't bring i was willing to drive all the way down to irvine instead of go to usc i just couldn't do it so um i knew i wanted to get an mba i knew that it would give me a perspective and a set of experience that I couldn't have exclusively working. For me, it was never a, a degree that I needed to have in order to be successful in my career, but it was a degree that I knew would make me more successful and open me up to more opportunities. And that certainly has proved to be the case. So Anderson was really the only choice for me. Um, and so I started the FEMBA program. I also knew I wanted to go part-time so that I could continue in my career while getting the degree and we overlapped in my third year at FEMBA is the year that my husband started law school. So we overlapped for one year. Wow. Okay. So wow. Your third year, because first year of law school is pretty tough, right? It's a hard one. Yeah. He's and told were... me many times that law school is harder than business school. Oh, I'm not that's... sure I him, but oh. it's, that's what he claimed. They don't do math in law school. Exactly. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, but, but the third year of FEMBA, you were doing the global access pro. Wow. You guys, that was a pretty chock-a-block year in your life. Yeah, it was busy, but we didn't have kids yet. I think we had a dog, so we had to figure out who was going to walk the dog. But other than that, we were able to just focus in and, and make it happen and get it done. And it was a good, good choice for both of us. And, um, we decided no need to wait. Let's just finish these degrees and then embark on the next part of our career. And you were, did you, were you at Disney when you began FEMBA? I've forgotten. I was not. I was one of the fortunate people who changed jobs 
during my FUMBA experience, I remember you, Dylan, saying there were the career enhancers. Am I going to use your language like the career enhancers and the career changers? I was both um, in that I enhanced my career, but I also changed my role. Um, and I think a lot of folks who did the FEMBA program found that they were, in fact, more marketable and more competitive um, switching roles or elevating their roles during the program. Um, so it ended up being a real benefit for me to even just be enrolled and be down the path in the program to be more competitive for a new opportunity. So I joined Disney um, maybe a year and a half into my FEMBA experience. And of course, there are a lot of great FEMBAs who work at Disney. Oh, yes. The Anderson Network, well, the FEMBA and the Anderson Network overall Disney is very kind. <laughs> Disney, Boeing, Northrop, Qualcomm, Toyota, back before Toyota moved. You know, those are some of our, our biggest relationships, plus the military. Did you use networking? Did Disney find you? Did you find Disney? You know, did I did found you Disney. Kind of catalyze that? Or? There have been two times in my career when I read a job description and I thought, gee, I think they wrote this about me. It was so specific to the experiences that I had had thus far. I had prior to Disney worked at two global PR firms working with large consumer organizations, consumer brands um, in a variety of categories with an emphasis on food brands and retail brands. Mm. So the opening at Disney was with their consumer products division, which is the licensing arm of the company. And I had such a depth of experience in communications for retail brands um, and restaurants that it was just tailor-made for the role. And so I found it and somehow I stuck out of the pile. I'm still not sure how, um, but it stuck out in the pile. I just applied online, which I know people think never works. Um, and the same happened again when I joined the nationals and the same process. I found the job and I read it and I thought, gosh, I can't imagine that there's someone else who's had the experience I've had that lines up with this. So I put my name in the hat and in both cases got a call back relatively quickly and proved myself for the role. So I found Disney, um, never thought I would leave, but um, had the necessity to leave for family commitments, but never looked back. Oh, I love it. So the two job descriptions that you've come across that were tailor-made were the Disney job and then the job you have now. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Correct. So, so you did not go through on-campus recruiting. You didn't do the sort of formal MBA thing. You were eyes open, looking for opportunities in both cases, an online offering. You see it, you, you go through, you know, the cover letter, the resume. And even though there's a stereotype that that never works, it's worked for two really plum destinations for you. One during school, a pivot halfway through FEMBA, and then the, the more recent pivot to the Washington Nationals, which we're going to talk more about. But is, is, did I capture that? Yeah, that's correct. And I think when you, when current students or recent alumni look through opportunities, I think certainly never sell yourself short on the value that you can bring. But short of having a relationship within the organization for which you want to work, really lining up very clearly how your experience and your skill set matches the role was really critical for me in both of those cases. I knew without a shred of doubt that my experience lined up perfectly. I didn't expect 
that I would get the job in either case. I knew that they would be extremely competitive, but lining up your experience and your skill set with the role is really critical. But that's also inadvertently been a benefit for me. I didn't intend to line up my experience and my skill set in order to get those jobs, but they did. And so I couldn't have intentionally directed myself to either of those opportunities to Disney and now with the nationals without the experience that I had prior. So I couldn't have charted that path intentionally. It was just the path that I was on and I was able to find the next step in that path, but I couldn't have forced myself to get there. So the global access program for you, you were with a a Finnish Finland, a, a company from Finland. They made nurse call systems. And as you were kind of reflecting back on your Anderson journey, you know, tell people where where GAP, the Global Access Program, where that experience lived for you, because um, I, I really felt like that should be shared. The Global Access Program was my favorite part of FEMBA, as separate from my classmates who were incredible. Um, people I'm still friends with, people who are so inspiring personally and professionally. I just adored the the people who are part of part of Anderson. Um, but classmates aside, and really in a way classmates specifically, the Global Access Program was such a cool way to do essentially a master's thesis. Um, it was interesting and challenging. It wasn't, um, it didn't feel tedious like a big report, even though it was at the end of the day. And for me, what was really defining for me at the end of the day was that in a group with financial analysts and engineers and classmates with skill sets far different and that I assumed far greater than mine, I was able to contribute to our group and our project in really significant ways. And I didn't think that I could do that going into the project. I thought, oh gosh, we really need the skill sets of these other team members. I'm not sure I'm going to have as much to add. I hope I can pull my weight in the group. And we absolutely needed the skill sets and the insights of all of our teammates. But I was able to contribute in ways that I didn't think that I could going in. And it gave me the confidence to apply that in a business setting where there might be a colleague who runs another department. I could be talking to the CFO, for example, but I could understand how my role in marketing and communications influences the financial performance of the company. And I hadn't connected those dots before, in part because I hadn't really had the opportunity to explore that and flex that muscle. And so I had the opportunity through the GAP program to start flexing muscles that I didn't know were there um, and strengthening them, which I can now use in my career. So it was a great opportunity for me to build that confidence, but do it in a really safe space with trusted classmates um, and in a program designed to support that growth and development in the students. So it was a great experience. You know, the Global Access Program, we now have an option that we did not have when you were here, which is the business creation option. And, Mm -hmm. you know, probably 80% of people do GAP, but 20% of people do what we call BCO, business creation option, which is more of a, I want to start my own entrepreneur endeavor contrasted to the GAP where I'm participating in in a going concern and I'm more of in a consultancy role. But so Gap is still our, it's still the big experience for the majority of FEMBAs. But the confidence that you brought into your professionalism by going through Gap and how that played itself forward, again, I'm, I'm planting the seeds for your right now world, but 
you currently have an accountability for all revenue for the Washington Nationals philanthropies. And and I loved how you were able to see, you know, Gap was a was a stepping stone building block going from, you know, I'm, I'm a communications major focusing on PR or comm studies major, excuse me, focusing on PR to, to where you are now, you know, 10 years after your MBA. And, you know, because I want people to be able to hear like, well, how did she get there? And, and I want to do the middle chapter also, because you made a pivot from Disney. I want to cover that and how you had to kind of balance your husband's career evolution with your own career evolution and where you had the mental mobility we talked about. So I'm trying to trying to get all this narrative together. You have a really cool story. But so everybody who's listening, you know, the Global Access Program was part of her journey. So yeah. so let's let's kind of want you leave leave uh, Anderson husband's in law school for a couple more years. You're at Disney. And then how did, how did your transition out of Disney happen? Cause that'll be like, who lets go of Disney, right? It's Disney, you know, don't you stay there forever. And yet your career went in a different way. Um, well, so, so I don't forget, um, you know, I couldn't run a regression at Anderson and I still can't run one now, but it doesn't matter if I never could figure it out. Okay, we're, it, not, we're not telling the statistics professors that. But okay. that's, sorry, I did not do well in that course, but that's not what I needed. I had the confidence to know that I could create a revenue model for a fundraising program and I didn't have the confidence to do that. I didn't need to be able to generate a balance sheet. That's not my role. I'm not the accountant, but I can create a, a revenue model for a fundraising program and I didn't have the confidence to do that. So, um, so I left Disney when my husband had the opportunity to serve as a judicial clerk for a federal judge in Miami. So we moved with our, at the time, four month old. Oh, wow. All the way across the country had never lived, hadn't lived outside of California since I was a baby. So we took our son all the way to Miami so that my husband could pursue this first step in his legal career. And I actually stayed home with my son for about 11 months, which is something I never, ever thought I would do. I never thought I'd be a stay at home mom. Um, and interestingly though, I never worried about my career. I was able to walk away from Disney. I understood why it was in the best interest of my family. And of course I had the support and encouragement of my colleagues there to take a next step. Um, in fact, I'll never forget the, the last day that I was at Disney walking through the hall one last time and reflecting, I hope I don't get emotional about it, but reflecting on what a cool experience it was. Um, at the time I thought, this is once in a lifetime, Kate, nobody gets these jobs and you, you had it. Um, and you enjoyed every minute of it and you did incredible things that only people who work at Disney get to do. Oh. And what I would say though, is the number of once in a lifetime, once in career moments I've had since I left Disney has been remarkable. Um, and so I left Disney stayed home with my son, which is, was a challenging and humbling experience to stay at home with the little one. They don't um, come with an instruction book. Sure do not. And they cry a lot. And they're hungry a whole lot. And you have to teach them everything, how to eat, how to talk, how to walk. Um, and, but it was a great experience and um, developed a great bond with my son. But we moved to Miami and we're there and we knew we would only be there for a year. So very intentionally decided, you know what, it didn't make sense to 
find something, do something for six months or nine months and then leave. Um, so I was patient to know there's something else out there. I'll figure it out when we know where we're going next. Your MBA mentality was there are a lot of things I could do. And I really loved how you said that, that, that part of your Anderson education was literally that, that mental, that mental ability to see myself as, wow, there are a lot of things I could do. I, I just, I want everybody who's getting their MBA or considering it to hear that Kate, that was one of the things that you developed for yourself. And I don't know if somebody told you that, or did you just kind of, did it just make sense to you intuitively? Like, there, there are two pieces of advice that I know Dylan, I've told you about that I'm, I think helped develop that mental framework for me. One was something that my father said to me when I got my very first job out of college and I had been working for a PR firm in LA. They were hiring in another division of the same firm and I was an intern they asked, would you be interested in applying for this opening at our most junior level? And I said, I just graduated from college. Of course I'm interested. In I'm hungry. Absolutely. And I didn't have to look for a job. It just found me. And I said to my dad, I'm so lucky. And he said, no, you're not. You make your own luck. You showed up every day. You did a good job at the tasks you were assigned. You built good relationships within the organization so that there was good buzz about you to the HR department, which caused them to think, gosh, she might be a good candidate for this opening that we have. So there was a little bit of fate involved, certainly, but I was on the radar of HR because of the work that I had done. And that certainly proved to be true. And the other piece of advice that has always stuck with me is something that the former chairman at Disney Consumer Products said to a group session once when somebody said, how did you get here, right? That question, when you look at someone, he was the chairman at the time of Disney Consumer Products. Prior to that, he had been the chief marketing officer at Nike. So you see this person with this incredible story career and you wanna get there. And he said something else that has always stuck with me, which is forget the five-year plan and the 10-year plan follow the opportunity. And he talked about how he started working, I think in a finance role at a small shoe company in the UK, which is where he was from. And the various doors that opened along the way that led him to Nike and then to Disney. Um, and he couldn't have charted that path. Um, one opportunity led to the other. And so those pieces of advice coupled with my own experience, seeing those lived out, gave me the confidence to know that there are a lot of things that I could do to have a fulfilling career, a successful career, and apply the skills that I have to something of interest. And so I never, I've never had one specific job or company in mind to say, this is what I'm aiming for. This is what I have to do to have a great career. I've looked at where I am in life physically, um, in some cases, you know, geographically, where am I or where are we going? Um, what my husband's opportunities were once we had children, what that meant for the types of jobs that would make sense for, for me and for our family, and used all of that to filter and say there are a lot of different ways I could go. 
and keeping myself open to those different opportunities. And it's worked out pretty well being being flexible in that way. I'm not generally a flexible person, but somehow in the long view of my career, I've been able to be pretty flexible. And you know, my advice to people, people say, you know, how do I maximize FEMBA? I always say, you know, three things, plan your work, work your plan, stay open-minded. And what I mean is that plan your work, have something that you're aimed at because there's so much at Anderson. If you don't have something you're aimed at, you could get a little lost because it's such a build your own adventure kind of, it's grad school and it's grad school at Los Angeles. It's grad school at UCLA. There's going to be more on the calendar than there are hours in the week. So plan your work, work your plan, right? Stick with it. You know, nothing beats getting out of bed every morning. John Wooden, industriousness, first, first part of the pyramid of success is industriousness. So work your plan. But then to stay open-minded, that's what I love about your story. Like you're developing this kind of mental, I keep saying toughness, but it is kind of, it's a mental agility. I'm mentally mobile. I could do this. I could do that. You, you, you know, the two perfect job descriptions, you had to be open and, you know, and, and just seeing what's out there such that you found those two perfect job descriptions, the one for Disney and the one later for the Washington Nationals. So what I want people listening to the podcast to take away one of the many things from your story is, is like all of us can develop that kind of mental attitude that I have an MBA. This is a very broad toolkit and I can, you know, and take the advice from Kate's mentor, you know, what's the opportunity of the moment, even, even right now, COVID, you know, oh my gosh, so much is disrupted. But if you're in the space of uh, helping people leave the city and move to middle America, there's a lot of that happening. You know, there's all this mobility as people are saying, why should I pay all this high rent if I can work remotely from anywhere? Okay, well, that's going to be an opportunity. I mean, just one example. Um, if you're in my world, if you're in remote education delivery, you know, there's going to be entire new pedagogies created in education, you know, elementary, high school, undergrad and beyond. So there are always opportunities, even when things are, oh my. So the middle chapter was, was PR and sports marketing. So tell people how that came about and what you learned from that chapter. So we had, if we were going to go anywhere in the world from Miami, we couldn't have gone to a better place for someone whose career had been in PR. We went to New York. So okay. Media and PR mecca, of certainly the country, probably the world. And so that gave me more opportunity, broadly speaking, that I would than I would have had if we had ended up in a smaller, in a smaller market. Okay. And this was, so, did, did your career lead or did your husband's? My husband's led again. He had the opportunity to serve as um, an academic fellow in the law school at Columbia University. Okay. Okay, great. We moved from Miami to Manhattan. So my son moved from LA to Miami to Manhattan um, before he was 18 months old. He's the um, cosmopolitan yeah. little toddler there. Sure is. And I kept joking with my with my husband that when my daughter when our daughter was born, we had another kid. They were going to be born in some somewhere else, somewhere in Middle America, and be like, "So my brother got to live." Wait, explain this to me. And I live here. Wait a minute. This doesn't seem right. Um, but we moved to New York again. We knew it was only going to be for a couple of years, but it was going to be long enough. And certainly um, the cost of living in New York would require that I would go back to work. And I was certainly ready. Um, and I think my son was ready for um, for a daycare setting at that point as well. So it was a good move for everybody. And I went back to what I knew um, and knew I could find some good opportunity in, which was working for a, a global PR firm. 
so I had the opportunity before me. I had a lot of interviews, landed a job that I thought was, it wasn't even perfect. I knew it wasn't perfect, but I thought, you know what? It's a good job. So let me just see what happens. I'll get there. I need a job. This is a good one. Working for a big brand. Um, that was going to be my focus was working just on one client. Mm. It was in New York. Get there, see what happens. If it was terrible, I would be there, which would give me more flexibility to interview elsewhere or make a quick change if it didn't work out. When I got to the role that I had, again, I was hired to work on one, one client, a hotel brand. And I quickly discovered that we had this portfolio of sports brands that no one was paying attention to. And I thought, wait a minute, hold on. I've never done sports marketing, but I sure do love sports. Um, I'll do it. No one wants to work on Adidas, sign me up. Um, you know, I would just, it was, I don't know how that happened, but it did. Um, just no one was really paying attention to it or tending the client. And so I said, I'll take it. Um, again, not even at that point realizing that I was headed down uh, a path that would open up a lot of other sports opportunities. But by raising my hand and taking that body of work, which I didn't know would be available to me when I took the job, but quickly found it and quickly raised my hand to to lead it. Um, it opened up opportunities to work with the global head of the sports practice for the firm who was based in London, um, who introduced me to um, a client who's now still a dear friend who was um, uh, involved in communications and marketing with City Football Group. So I was able to launch a professional sports team when New York City Football Club joined Major League Soccer a number of years ago now, five years ago, I think. Never thought I would do that. I played soccer. St I still play soccer. I played soccer for 33 years um, and never thought, I thought that was it. I thought, gosh, I've worked for Disney, but I didn't even know I could do the PR to launch a professional soccer team. Now I've reached the top, right? Nothing could be better than this. Um, and except then it was um, within that same firm, I was able to work with the Invictus Games, which is Prince Harry's adaptive sports competition when they held their biannual competition down in Orlando. So this whole body of sports work that I didn't know I would have the opportunity to do, but I raised my hand for, and one client and piece of good work led to another, gave me a background in sports that, again, I didn't, I did three years of, uh, three and a half years of sports marketing there that I didn't sign up for, that I didn't know was going to be available to me. But by taking the job and keeping myself open to what was there, I was able to take on this body of work that I absolutely loved. Um, and again, if I had started out when I started undergrad or even when I left Anderson thought I'm headed to sports marketing, no idea, had no idea, um, had no, I would have had no idea how to get there. If I tried to get there, I would have been less successful to be honest. Um, as happens, right. You know, someone who says I'm going to work in sports marketing and they try to get there and they get frustrated when they don't. I, you know, I got there, a do the door was ajar and I just kicked mm -hmm. it wide open and said, great, I'll take what's available and I'll keep building. <laughs> I'll keep adding to this, this little sports empire here, um, you know, with one piece of good work after another. So that's how I fell backwards, literally backwards into sports marketing. But I had the, I had the, um, I had not only the confidence, but certainly when you say you've worked for Disney or you've worked and I'd worked with another, a number of other major um, international well-known brands, that credibility translated even to the sports world. Well, we, we had incredible career outcomes last year. Uh, our class of 2019 
their pre-MBA salary, their post-MBA salary was, I think that was 75% of the 2019 spring graduates reporting was like a uh, 49% jump, you know, from about 85,000 to almost 140. And, you know, people don't get 49% pay raises doing the same thing. And I think, you know, to be, um, the real talk portion of our conversation is there's a lot of elbow grease that went into that, right? We're talking about the highlights, but, um, you know, there, there were managers along the way who tried to take opportunities away from me. And I had to prove myself when I had my second child and I came back from maternity leave. Um, my boss at the time, who was a woman, took away my entire portfolio of work and left me with nothing. Um, so there's a lot of challenges and setbacks and, and a heck of a whole lot of hard work along the way to keep on track um, or at least to keep forward momentum, right? Because I've, I've never had a singular track or path, but to keep forward momentum, um, there's setbacks too. So it's so many great successes um, and a career that I'm extremely proud of, um, but a lot of hard work that went into every single one of those opportunities that led to the next and certainly setbacks along the way that you just have to keep the long view of your career. I know that's hard when you're in a program and you're thinking about your next job. It's hard to look and know that down the line, you will look back and be very pleased with where you've been because you can't see it yet um, because it hasn't happened. But um, there'll be setbacks, but keep the forward momentum going and you'll look back and be incredibly surprised at everything you've done um, and incredibly proud of it. Well, I'll, I'll name drop a name from that you'll remember, but uh, Carla Hain, Senior Associate Dean, while you were in school, Carla Hain, who, let's see, you graduated in 2010, so you started in 2007? Yep, that's so, I, so she became Senior Associate Dean the fall that you began. Oh yeah, you started the fall we were number one in Business Week. I sure did. I've got the sweatshirt and the hats and all the gear to prove it. Oh my gosh, that I still tell people, we're just one of the very top. When I was there, we were number one in the country. That was, I, yeah. I have, I still, I have the sweatshirt, the hats, all the things, the shirts. <laughs> Um, and we've never been lower than number five, but we don't always hit number one. So number one. You know, we're, we're always in the top I five. I had something to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. But. One, of, one of Carla's um, great pieces of advice to me, I was whining to her about something one day and she said, Dill, if you have a career without some setbacks, well, that's not much of a career. And it was so, you know, I wanted, I wanted somebody to pat me on your head. And, you know, she was kind of kicked me in the butt. And I loved it. You know, I didn't like it at the time. I was annoyed. I'm like, I wanted a cookie. But, you know, she was, she pointed, I've never forgotten that piece of advice because it's sort of like, hey, if I'm playing a real game, then not everything is going to be a home run, right? I'm going to strike out. There's going to be misses. So what, right? I'm on the court. I'm playing the game. And what I love about Carla Hain, this is FEMBA UCLA Anderson history, but Carla architected the global immersions. Before Carla Hain, there were no one-week global immersions around the world. Now that's the model for all of Anderson, not just FEMBA and EMBA, but also full-time. And Mar uh, excuse me, Margaret was her successor. But Carla also was the architect for FEMBA Flex, which started two years after your graduation, but our hybrid delivery, which was a nice to have before COVID, but now it's like, you know, thank God we've got eight years of teaching hybrid distance learning under our belt because we were able to transition to the spring quarter COVID. Yeah. Hey, one, two, three, go, everybody remote, 100%. We actually had eight years of practice of our hybrid model, which is half remote. But so 
you have your mentor from Disney. I have Carla. Uh, but it's like, I, you know, it's like one of these also things as you get further along in your career to don't, don't forget to slow down and pay it forward to the people behind you, which is what I hope that we're doing today. Cause you know, you've learned these lessons, you've built your career to this moment and I want your lessons to pay forward to others who are listening. So immersion program is great. I know no one's traveling right now, but that was incredible. I did. I went to Beijing with as part of that program and it was, I never would have traveled to China. I've never had a, a reason professionally. I wouldn't have done it personally. And it was such a great experience with my classmates, with the university to go to a place I never would have spent time. So any Femba who wants to do that or is thinking about UCLA, it's incredible program. One day you'll be able to travel again. So when you are. We will, we will travel again. Great program. I loved it. Oh, that's excellent. It's hard. Still yeah. a lot of work to, my mom described, has always described it this way to me. She said, you're on one treadmill all day at your job. Then you get home and get on another treadmill to take care of your kids and your family. And I've now added yet another switch back to the first treadmill because when I was a kid, my parents brought homework a little bit, but to really date myself, you couldn't bring the work home. You didn't have a laptop. You didn't right. have an iPhone or its predecessor, the Blackberry. You couldn't bring it home. So my mom would bring home some notes and papers and things that she would read. My dad wouldn't really bring home anything because you couldn't. And it also wasn't the norm that you were expected to be accessible and working all hours of the day and night. And so now I get off the treadmill with my family once the kids are in sleep and I get back on the work treadmill. And so it's hard, but it's, it's rewarding. And even still my kids, their camps and schools finally opened back up in our area in Virginia with the current phasing that we're in for reopenings and they could not get out of this house fast enough. Not because, <laughs> not because they wanted to get away from us, but because they couldn't wait to go be with their friends, be with their teachers, do something else than be at home with mom and dad all day, every day for three and a half months. They couldn't wait. They had, they were very happy to be do that, to do that. And they're very happy to come home and have dinner and, watch a show together or play a game together and then go back and do it the next day. So it's hard and it's a lot of work, but everybody finds their rhythm and everybody in the family is able to enjoy what it is that they're doing. So I was able to transfer with the firm that I was with in New York down to DC, which was a great opportunity. But I quickly found when I came down here that my skill set didn't really apply. Okay political town. I didn't work in politics. I didn't work on campaigns. I didn't work in public affairs. I wasn't a lobbyist. Yeah. I worked on sports brands and consumer brands and nobody's doing that down here for the most part. So I had to kind of take a half step. Um, I left the firm that I was with after a little while, tried a lot of different ways to make it work. I know one thing Dylan, you and I have talked about is I wasn't so stuck on having to keep doing the same thing with the firm I was with. I just said very clearly to my boss and anyone who would listen, I just want to add value to the firm. So tell me how I can add value, put me on something else. Let me take on a different role. Um, and that never worked out. In fact, I just joked with um, a former colleague just this morning um, who I shared a little something from my, my current 
experience with her. And I joked to her and I said, well, I'm glad that firm didn't work out or else I wouldn't be able to share this with you. Um, so I had to sort of take a half step and find something in this town that did fit my skill set and my interests and my background, which was not as easily done as LA or New York, where there are many more opportunities to work in consumer marketing than there are in DC. There are a few big, there's a few sports teams and a few big brands based here, but not a lot. And so I really had to pound the pavement quite a bit more than I ever had in my career to I did all of the things that you do when you're looking for a job. You list out all of the companies, um, or in this case, um, nonprofits, which I hadn't considered before moving here. Um, there's a lot of trade groups, industry trade groups here. You write them all down, and then you figure out, do I know someone there? Are they hiring? You do your research on all of them. Um, I did all of that work um, when I left the firm, and I ended up at a nonprofit. Again, not something I ever thought I was going to do. Uh, not what I had been doing in consumer marketing and sports marketing, but that skill set and that experience translated to the role, to a marketing role with a nonprofit that raised funds to support um, preservation of the National Mall. So I was able to do some interesting things there, but it was never quite the right fit for me, that organization. Um, never, it didn't quite know what it wanted to be when it grew up. And I had never been in an environment that small, but the ability to gain um, really hands-on working experience at a nonprofit gave me a skill set and a perspective that I didn't have um, in addition to the things I had already done. So um, it was a half step. It was the, the shortest opportunity that I had, always being mindful of what I know any job seeker is concerned about is, you know, how long have I been somewhere and not making it look like I was bouncing around too much, but I'd moved to the market. The role I had when I moved wasn't working out, needed to do something, needed to pivot somehow and took what I now realize was a half step um, to where, to where I am today. Um, but without that half step, I would not have been, um, I would not have had the skill set that I needed. I would not have had the credentials that I needed and I wouldn't have the confidence that I needed to have the job that I have today. So it wasn't again, where I thought I was going to go. It was different than where I had been, but I was able to take what I had been doing and apply it to this new role. And without it, um, with all the ups and downs of that role, without that role, I wouldn't have been competitive for the job I applied for with the Nationals. And again, geographically, it was Miami to New York. Well, it was LA to Miami for a, so you and your husband, again, you're, you're navigating this two career reality. And there's, there's kind of a, there's, there's certain things you do as a young lawyer, if you're trying to get going, right? So he's trying to do that. Your family is happening. You know, so there's a lot of, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of adjusting going on in all the stakeholder groups within your family, right? Trying to get everybody's needs met. Yeah, absolutely. It was the, the path was LA to Miami, to New York, down to Washington. And, and now we're done moving. We're done moving as much as we would love to come back to LA. This is the, the destination um, now that the kids are old enough to be in school. So we're done moving finally, but had to be open along the way to different opportunities, had to be flexible and apply the mindset that I had developed along the way, which is there are a lot of different roles that I could have um, and enjoy my work and feel that I'm successful in it. Um, leaving Disney, leaving at the time sports marketing 
I didn't expect to do that. I might not even necessarily have wanted to do it, but I knew I needed to make a change or it was the right time for a change and still found great enjoyment and opportunities with the next role every so time. From, so from the, the, the mall preservation in that first role in DC, when did you, when did you find the Washington nationals or did they find you? How did, how did this part happen? Yeah. I, once again, just like with Disney, I found, Oh, that's right. This is the second job description. I found the role and I knew that I was ready to leave the previous organization and it was the right time. I knew that my, uh, my opportunities had sort of run its course there. It was a little bit too unstable for my liking being with an organization that small. So I was, I was open-minded again, went back to the list that I had developed, you know, a year and a half prior, went back to that same list and said, okay, let's start over. Let's start this over. This is running its course clearly, but I knew I had flexibility in the, what was next and the timeline. I was able to do it on my timeline. I didn't, there was no reason I needed to leave except I knew I've always told folks who work for me when they say, um, you know, I'm not sure when's the right time for me to leave. And I always say, you'll know the, op you'll know when the opportunity ahead of you is greater than the opportunity you're leaving behind. There's always opportunity at your current job to do more, to take on more, to try different things. Um, when the opportunity ahead of you with the new role outweighs that, that's when you know, um, when you're willing to walk away from the opportunities that you could have in the known role because the opportunities ahead are so much greater. And I knew that I would find that. I just didn't know what that was yet. So I went back to the list of all the places where I thought I wanted to work. And over time, over a couple of months of being patient and parsing through different opportunities, saw a role with uh, the Nationals charitable arm. And I know Dylan, you and I talked about uh, 10 years ago when I graduated from Anderson, this job that I have now didn't exist. It didn't exist because the Nationals were a brand new team, having moved from Montreal, being the Expos, down to Washington. They were a brand new team. The foundation at the time was a very small group with uh, a much narrower focus and mission. The Youth Baseball Academy, which is the signature program of Nationals Philanthropies, didn't exist when I graduated from Anderson. And even 18, 20 months ago when I took this job, it didn't exist because there was no prior role that I was filling. It was a new role that was created to look at philanthropy in a new way, look at how to drive a culture of philanthropy within a professional sports organization that permeates the marketplace so that the team's charitable arm is almost acting as a community foundation, um, not just an outgrowth for grants or field renovations, all of which we do um, and are which are standard across sports philanthropy and incredible and important work. But um, my boss, who I came to work for, had a, has a vision um, that we're working to fulfill and already are fulfilling of really developing a culture within our ball club to have it be focused. You look to your right and you look to your left in Nats Park and everybody around you is behaving philanthropically. Um, we know that's a culture that we live in and we know that's certainly true in DC and we want to make that part of the culture of being a Nats fan. And that's a perspective that I don't think most sports teams look at when they evaluate their philanthropy. They do great work to deliver community impact, but our goal is bigger than that to make philanthropy part of the brand experience, part of the ethos of being a Nats fan is being philanthropic. I remember you saying, we're not just trying to give away money. 
you know, we actually want to partner with the community where we are. You know, we, we, we're a stadium on a side of town. People come from other parts of town. We're part of that community and we want our philanthropy and development effort to actually integrate to that community. And I got all excited hearing you talk about that and then hearing you talk about, you know, the food distribution that you were doing in the wake of the original economic shock of people losing their jobs because DC is full of people in hospitality and, you know, all these industries that just stopped because there was no more travel. There's no more eating out. There's all of the energy of DC and the, the people meeting people in places, all of the jobs that support that just froze. So there was, there was literal economic pain in the community of the Washington nationals. You know, can you tell people some of the, the efforts that you were doing at that point, and then we'll even fast forward to what you're doing now. So much has changed since we, even we first spoke. Um, what do you do when you're the philanthropic arm of a professional sports team that isn't playing sports? It sounds like a non-starter. It sounds like a quiet period or a dark time, but what we had already been building toward I said to my boss, as strange as it sounds, I said, this is exactly what we're made for. This is exactly what we've set out to do is to be a resource and a beacon of light in our community when they need it most. We didn't expect it would come this soon, but here it is staring us in the face so much so, Dylan, that we had intended to launch our new brand. Nationals Philanthropies is a new name for what has been historically known as the dream foundation for the team. But we had brought together the Youth Baseball Academy and the foundation to create one enterprise in order to really collate and make consistent our philanthropic efforts in the market. And we had planned to launch that in mid to late March at our annual fundraising gala. Well, that gala didn't happen. <laughs> you know, anything mid-March. <laughs> I said to my team, I said, we got to launch it anyway, because this is exactly who we are. This is, let's tell people who we are. If we don't tell them we've been working on this work and laying the groundwork for it behind the scenes for a year and a half, they've seen the work, but they don't know the strategy behind it. There's truly no better time to introduce ourselves to the marketplace and say, we're more than in stadium fundraising or more than supporting player philanthropy. We are all those things, but we're so much more. We behave essentially as a community foundation. We convene all of the philanthropic interests in the community and we use the power of the Nationals brand to catalyze that for greater effect. If I'm giving a dollar over here and you're giving a dollar over there, Dylan, but we can give it together and the Nationals will match that dollar, the power in that is much greater. And that's what we were building toward. And the coronavirus gave us an opportunity to actually debut that um, in this oddest of times, but it was really a, a perfect time for us to say, actually, this is what we're here for. Um, and so our initial response, the crisis number one, I know we're going to talk about the related crises um, and new crises that have come along since then, but crisis number one was how do we respond and support our marketplace? And so we first introduced our brand and then we very quickly set up a community response fund um, instead of um, very much by design, we intended to give away money before we worried about how we were going to 
raise money to support our operations. Even though we're the philanthropic arm of the nationals, we are an independent 501c3. So we raise our operating budget just like every other nonprofit. Um, but we very intentionally said, we're going to put that aside for now. Our budget forecast is in the garbage because it's irrelevant. Um, yeah. We'll redo that. We'll redo that in a minute. Um, but today, people are out of work and people are hungry and people are concerned about how to access healthcare. And so we said the first thing we need to do is respond to the community. And so we set up the NAPS for Good Community Response Fund. Um, and we did it very much in mind to be a resource in our community for the long haul. We didn't know what we were getting into, but we knew it wasn't gonna go away anytime soon. So unlike a natural disaster or a fire or something where there might be an acute situation in a limited area, we knew this was gonna impact our entire region and for a very long time, um, at least three to six months, the economic fallout of people being out of work for so long, even longer than that. And so in setting up the response fund, um, it was rapid response fundraising and that we appealed to our fans, um, our donors, our, our players um, and ownership to help support us. And they've all stepped up so that we've been able to raise almost $500,000 that we will then turn into grants to our, not our, our nonprofit community partners who are on the ground doing the work. So food access partners, health providers, and human services. We now are issuing rolling grants. We've issued about $200,000 in grants so far um, from the fund, um, but we're pacing ourselves because we know that this crisis is going to be around for the long haul. And so we took every plan that we had, threw it away, and said, we got to start over because this is what the community needs. And we're well positioned to do it because when the nationals can put their brand behind something, when nationals players can stand behind something, um, and when nationals fans know that they can do something together, the power of that philanthropy is incredible. So much so that in three months, we've been able to raise $500,000. Um, so it was not at all what we planned to do, but it was everything we had built ourselves to do behind the scenes um, and we were ready to roll it out at, at just the right time. Wow. I just, and I just hear the harmonics from your, your Disney mentor, you know, don't worry about your five and 10 year plan and about your father yet again, you know, yeah. you, it's not luck. It's, it's, you know, and John Wooden would say, what does he say? You know, preparation. Oh, I can't quote Wooden, right. Um, <laughs> He's got one about preparation meets opportunity or something, yep. but you like do the work in practice and the results will show up in game time. So you, you saw this opportunity, a new kind of philanthropy, a visionary boss. Hey, I think I've got transferable skills. You put yourself on the court. That was just 18 months ago. You were getting ready to do a new kind of philanthropic community, community building, not just giving away bobbleheads, you know, something deeper, something more integrated. And then this crisis comes along and, oh, my God, it's not even a good idea. This is now like, you know, now we're talking about people don't have food and we're not going to have our gala. We're still going to launch our new vision of ourselves. But then, you know, we're going to transition what we do with our ballpark because we're, you know, our product is sports and we're not playing sports. I, there was like you, you got to write a Harvard business case about this someday. I think, you know, it'll make a wonderful be story a about yeah, be a good one. It really would be a good one. So tell people about like serving, you know, serving food at the stadium. You know, I know you're winding that down, but you 
you served a lot of meals the last couple of months. We have. It's been an incredible. When we talk about utilizing the philanthropic arm of the Nationals to behave as a community foundation, we have to remember that the facilities that we operate are also there for the benefit of the community in good times for sports and entertainment. Um, but through a partnership with the Nationals, the team that runs our stadium operations and World Central Kitchen with Nationals Philanthropies as the connective tissue, we were able to utilize and we have been able to utilize for the last several months, the ballpark to generate about 10,000 meals a day um, with World Central Kitchen so that we could feed the community. And so over the last couple of months, we have delivered more now, more than 500,000 or half a million meals back into the community, turning over the operations of the stadium. We had this great facility. We had a team uh, that we could partner with at World Central Kitchen that knew how to do crisis response um, in food access specifically. And then we were able to use Nationals Philanthropies to connect to different pockets of the community that needed food. And we were able to bring all of those entities together and their respective skill sets in order to use the ballpark in a really unique way that very much had tangible impact. And I believe we were the first ballpark or stadium or arena to serve in that way um, in response to COVID. So others have done it since then, but we were the first to use our sports facility um, as a community resource to prepare and disseminate food out of, um, which was really incredible. And it took, um, again, a lot of manpower and uh, a lot of partnership to make that happen. But it was very much consistent with the ethos of Nationals Philanthropies to serve as a community foundation. But we also had the credibility of having supported food access through our Youth Baseball Academy for years. So it wasn't a new area of interest for us. We had been supporting food access um, as a key and critical need for the community for years. And we were able to just amplify that through the ballpark. 10,000 meals. So is that, you know, that's 10,000 people who are hungry for whom this economic shock has been devastating, for whom food security is, hopefully it was not an issue before, but it's definitely an issue now. So your ability to look at this, you know, what's the opportunity at this moment? Well, there's a need. We exist. We have resources. We have you know, we have government approved kitchens to serve up healthy sanitary meals. Like, but again, we're not, these are not hot dogs in the seventh inning. This is now, oh no, no, members of our community are without. How can we repurpose this infrastructure to respond to the needs of this moment? Yes, that's exactly right. And I think what we've seen in Washington, which I'm certain is consistent in other parts of the country, is the various crises that have happened over the last couple of months have only shown a brighter light on existing challenges in infrastructure and access that were already there. So there were already an estimated 600,000 people in the greater Washington area who were hungry every day. Um, food access was an issue already for about 10% of our population. The need tripled with COVID and there wasn't the infrastructure to respond to that at first. And so we worked with a number of food partners, um, including World Central Kitchen to try to respond to that. There was already a significant need, 10% of our community was already wondering where their next meal would come from. 
that tripled when people were suddenly out of work. Um, and so the ballpark became an even more important resource to be able to access to meet uh, what had been an exponentially increased need. Like you said, it's shined a spotlight. The, you know, the, the killing of George Floyd mm-hmm. and the other killings and where we are as a society looking at ourselves in the mirror and not blinking and seeing some things that we've probably not been looking at, not probably, that have definitely not been looked at meritous to the pain that's associated with those events. You know, so many people want to make the world a better place. Yes. And I think, you know, I, I, part of your story that inspires me is not only are you making the world a better place, but you're using an MBA level, your ex, you know, like what is the MBA good for? It teaches you how to see complexity and see ambiguity and still find a pathway forward. You know, back in Gap, when you guys were advising, how are we going to make a nurse call system in Finland? It's not like you learned that growing up in Bakersfield, right? You, you know, um, I didn't even know what it was until we... You know, and, and now you're in D.C. in a global pandemic and an economic downturn. And then the third shock is, you know, a nationwide response to systemic racial injustice that dates back centuries. It, it could be overwhelming or it could be depressing. It could be debilitating. It's many things for many people. None of us are digesting this easily. I I really want people who are listening to this podcast, getting an MBA, wondering how does this all turn out? Like, listen to Kate's story, please, right? You know, Kate's putting a lot of elbow grease Mm -hmm. into building her life, her career, supporting her family, growing her family. But it's not all just about Kate and her husband and her two beautiful children. It's also about the world out there. And you've uniquely positioned yourself to be in a position of influence. You know, Judy Olian used to say, you know, I want our graduates to lead lives of significance, to be leaders of significance. I love that turn of phrase. And I acknowledge you on behalf of all of us, you and your five degrees from UCLA, you know, you're like what makes, I like wearing this shirt. You know, I didn't go to UCLA, but I feel like I'm adopted into the Bruin family and the potential of education to make a difference and to be a pathway of access and then to pay it forward, right? It's not just to get an education to get a raise yeah. or to get a fancy title. It's, it's to have an education to be able to have a life in the face of whatever life does. So, sorry, I'm sermonetting on you here, but you know, I, I'm grateful that you're willing to tell your story. I want people to know your story exists. I want people to be inspired from Kate's story to write their own story. And I want them to have some of this mental toughness. You know, I could do that. You know, Dylan, you and I have talked about something that my kids have said to me, which is, you know, mommy, why do you work so hard? And it is a real privilege for me to tell, especially my son, who's now eight, what I do every day. And mommy works so hard because mommy's trying to figure out how to feed hundreds of thousands of hungry people. Mommy has the opportunity to direct grant funding from Nationals Philanthropies to the place it needs it most, um, to be able to send 
almost $50,000 to DC Central Kitchen to fund their grocery bag program for a month. I got to make that decision. Again, also not something I thought I was signing up for in this job. Didn't even really know it was part of the job when I took it. Um, and so it's my responsibility to get smart on a lot of things that I wasn't and wouldn't have had any reason to necessarily be an expert in. Um, food access has been one of them. Um, now, how to effectively support local organizations that are addressing systemic racial and social injustice. What's the best way to do that? Um, not only through my role can the work deliver significance, but it's significant to me. I learn so much more than I ever have in any job about things that really matter so that I can be as smart as possible on really this interconnected set of issues. I know it can seem overwhelming, but they're, they're truly interconnected. Um, housing and transportation and job opportunity is directly connected to food access and education and healthcare. Um, it's all interconnected. And so I learned so much, but I have the real privilege to be able to tell my son that mommy works so hard, not only to provide for our family, but because if I can be as knowledgeable as possible and as thoughtful as possible in my job, I can have even more impact where it's needed most. And on its face, it might seem like what business in the world does the baseball team have to do with any of this? Why does, what are you, what are y'all doing? This doesn't make any sense. Um, but when someone from the nationals calls your nonprofit and says, hey, how can we help? They always take the call. Um, and they don't have any sense of, of what they're going to hear on the other end. We have, uh, I also have the, the great privilege of being able to call people and say, I want to give you $25,000. Tell me how you're going to use it. You don't get those calls. I, I do the, all the fundraising for my organization. Nobody calls you out of the blue and says, I have $25,000 I want to give you. We get to make those calls. Um, so what business does the baseball team have in doing this? We're not the on the ground experts in many of these areas. We don't deliver in most cases, the food access program, but we are now a trusted incredible partner to the organizations that do it best. And we can amplify their work and we can support financially their work. We can connect our fan base to their work. And that's the power of putting the nationals behind these initiatives. And it's a signal to our fan base and the larger community, hey, pay attention. We're here to win baseball games. In fact, we're here to win championships but we're also here to be a good community partner. And it's our responsibility. It is a responsibility of the ball club to behave in that way. Um, and so it's a privilege for me to get to do that. And it makes it a lot easier to explain to my son why mommy works so hard. Um, and he's interested in it. Um, it opens his eyes to things that um, otherwise we wouldn't have cause to talk about as a family. Um, but because I live it and breathe it every day, he's, he's very interested. In fact, we were talking about uh, the World Central Kitchen operations the other day. He wasn't eating his dinner like eight-year-olds do, complaining about it. And I said, you know, bud, lots of people right here where we live don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They're hungry, bud. Um, and, you know, that's part of what mom works on every day. Just like, I know, I know. And I said, you know, but and he, instead of eating his dinner, he said, 
well, mom, what if I just gave money? And I said, well, that's really helpful. But he said, well, what about $10? And I said, $10, that can, that can create about 25 meals. And he was like, wait, it can? And I said, yeah. I said, buddy, if you give $10, how about I give $10? And I said, I bet dad would give $10. You want to ask him? He said, yeah. And I said, great. Now we've had, now we've given $30. And then I said, you know what? I'll have your, I'll have your little sister give $10 to you. I said, now we've, now we're going to give $40 to the food bank. And he said, mom, that's a hundred meals. And just the light went off in his head that really by almost doing nothing, um, we could, and he could enable a hundred meals, which to him sounded like a lot. And it is a lot because every single meal is important to someone who's hungry, um, that he could support that and that that work could be enabled and that mom could help that money get somewhere where it could really have an impact. So um, it's a privilege to, to have this job, but it also makes it easier to answer the question to my kids about why mom does so much work. I just love it. And I've almost forgotten we have some show and tell. Don't we have a few slides? So I started, you know, Dylan, you and I talked about what has my journey been like and talking about the journey and how you don't just get from nowhere to this world that I have with the Nats overnight. And the first thing I did was chart out the different jobs that I had. And then I thought, you know what? That's not even really the point. The names of these firms don't mean anything to anybody. Um, they really don't even mean anything to me, except that it's, I, I was able to see, I redid the whole slide. I redid the whole visual because I thought that's not even really the story. And that, that isn't my story. My story was that I had the great opportunity, made my own luck to get a couple of early jobs with big PR firms where I was able to work with Fortune 500 brands and blue chip consumer brands. And that put me in a good position to be able to land the dream job at, at Disney. And I made that a little bigger, not because it's more important to my story, but because you would think, especially if you're looking for the next step in your career, or you're just, you're in FEMBA or at Anderson, or you're about to start and you think, well, Disney wasn't the destination, like not even close as it turns out. Um, and you would think for so many people that would be the destination and why would you ever leave? Um, and it gave me a lot of credibility, but it was really the way that I got to the role that I have now started in 2013 when I took a job at a PR firm to work for a hotel brand and ended up working on some incredible sports work. And that gave me opportunity that I didn't know existed, didn't know was going to be available to me and was very different than I had had thus far, but it was still there. And I took advantage of it. And then that coupled with the opportunity to work for a nonprofit for the first time, learn uh, what the development function did, learn about how to track your leads in Salesforce and how to really consider how to activate a donor as, as opposed to a consumer making a consumer transaction or a for-profit transaction. That base really allowed me to be, to get to what, you know, right now is the destination, the Curly W. Um, and back when I started, Graduating in 2004, which is going to date me a little bit, but graduating 2004, again, I couldn't have charted this path. I probably shouldn't have made it a straight line because it sure didn't feel like one, but I never could have gotten from 2004 or even 2009. Being at Anderson, 2010 when I graduated, I could not have planned or ordered each of these steps. I just couldn't have. Um, they ordered themselves and I just had to be open to where it could lead me 
and not even knowing where it was going. Um, and I think I ended up someplace pretty good. And I can't wait to see what comes next with the Nationals or beyond. Um, I hope the Nationals is a place I am for a very long time because it's incredibly challenging and rewarding. Um, but I never could have planned how to get here. Again, because when I graduated in 2010, this job didn't even exist. And, and you know, like in 2013, you know, when you looked around, like, hey, who's, who's taking care of Adidas? Oh, nobody. Oh, okay. You know, like, like yeah. those of you listening, there are opportunities laying around. And if you wait for a manager to point it out to you, it may never come. But if you just keep your eyes open, you know, there's, there are opportunities around. There, there just are. And I love Kate's story because she has taken the, the mental frame of, I could do that with, you know, some mentoring of, Look for the opportunity, create the opportunity, follow, follow the opportunity. So, okay. All right. What's the next slide? Hey. So Ooh, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble with anyone uh, at the ballpark, but Dylan, I told you the story that when I got to call for the job I have now, I was actually wearing a Dodger shirt. I grew up a Dodgers fan. I went to games as a kid in Chavez Ravine. I was, this is an embarrassing story, but I was far older than I care to admit when I realized that the words to take me out to the ball game were not root, root, root for the Dodgers. I didn't realize that every team sang their own team. I just thought the song was about the Dodgers when I was a kid until I still wasn't a kid and I just didn't realize not everyone rooted for the Dodgers. You don't um, burst my bubble. I like and, my version. Uh, that's a true story. I really thought when I was a kid, that's what everyone sang or that nobody else sang it because who else would root for another team? Um, so much so that in 2018, when my boss called me and said, hey, will you come work for me at the Nationals? In 2012, 2018, the Dodgers were in the playoffs and the Nats were not. And uh, the only time I had ever been to Nats Park was to watch the Dodgers. So I had a Dodger shirt on because the Dodgers had a playoff game that night. And I said, you know, I'm wearing a Dodger shirt right now. Are you still going to hire me? Um, he said, yes, thank goodness. So my husband coined the frame, we are a Dodgers family, but we are a Nationals household, which I think fits. Um, oh, because that sounds like such a lawyer. That's a good lawyer thing to say. <laughs> we're a Dodgers. Like it it's accurate. I have great memories of being a Dodgers fan. I still love the Dodgers, but man, and I am I a fan of the Nats now, even without uh, a World Series under our belts. Um, it's been such it's such a thrill. I, I try to tell this to colleagues I work with today, but uh, but other people as well. You know, yes, my job is cool, but what a thrill it is to walk through the ballpark every day. I have the privilege of working in the ballpark, and it's just cool. Um, told you the story earlier of my last day at Disney and walking the halls and really just being moved. So I stopped in the middle of the hallway because it's late and no one else was there. And I just looked around and I thought, wow, Kate, you had this opportunity and man, was it special. Don't ever take it for granted. I do that every single day when I go to the ballpark. Haven't been to the ballpark in a while, but when we go back to the ballpark, I know I'll feel that way again. Um, it's really special and really cool. Um, so it's a dream job I never knew I wanted. It's a dream job that didn't exist. Um, but I also don't take for granted that it comes with uh, a lot of really cool experiences. These are my kids last summer on the field, um, 
pretty sure we were playing the Dodgers, but you can see that everyone was dressed appropriately um, in their Nats gear. Um, my son in his Juan Soto jersey, my daughter who thinks Max Scherzer is her buddy, that's what she calls him. We met once, she thinks they're friends, it's adorable. Wow. Um, they love the Nats, I love the Nats, um, and it's really cool to be able to not only do work that is important and fulfilling, but I certainly don't take for granted that uh, work perks of being on the field with my family before games is something special that not everybody gets to experience. And so I'm certainly grateful for it. Um, so these are my, my little ones down on the field, enjoying every minute of, I'm sure shortly after this, they asked for a hot dog and some snacks, but for a moment, they lived large down on the field before a game. Oh, I love it. What a beautiful picture. Picture's worth a thousand words. It is. They're, they're, they're pretty cute. I'm glad they're mine. Um, <laughs> I think the next thing here, Dylan, we talked about the opportunity to build a brand. So this was really what initially attracted me to this role. My background is in marketing, and I knew there was going to be an opportunity to um, evolve and really establish the marketing function. That's why I took the job. I took the job um, as the head of marketing and to work on what we call citizen fan fundraising, which is small dollar grassroots fundraising. And that was the job I took. It's evolved since then um, in a lot of really incredible ways. But this was something I'd always wanted to do in my career, never thought I would get to do. And that's build a brand. Um, Curly W existed. So there was a great foundation to build from. But I was able to lead the organization through renaming the foundation um, and then working with some outside designers to come up with a new brand identity, uh, which was a lot of fun. So what you see here, um, that's probably making you dizzy at this point, scrolling, <laughs> on, you, uh, scrolling on the screen is, uh, we call it the block. It is, you can see it's not a diamond, like a baseball diamond, though you might think it's one. Um, it's a little bit of an oblong rectangle that's intended to represent the city block. Uh, because the impact that we hope to have is block by block throughout the entire community where the work that we do and the impact we have really can touch so specifically members of our community. They'll feel it on their city block. They'll feel it in their neighborhood. It won't be this abstract impact. It will be impact that members of our community can really feel. So we call it the block um, because it represents the city block. And you can see we have it coming out of the actual map of the district. We call it the DMV. When I moved here, I thought the DMV stood for Department of Motor Vehicles, but apparently it doesn't. Apparently it stands for the District Maryland and Virginia and everybody says it. So I've gotten on board with the DMV. Um, so it's coming out of the DMV as a city block. Um, so that was a really cool experience to get to, to name an organization and build a brand from the bottom up, create a style guide for the brand. That was that was really cool. In addition to all the community work we do, um, it was marketing dreams come true for me. And one of the things you mentioned earlier, you know, I'm going to change the slide because that's going to make you go crazy. <laughs> and, and maybe you're going to get to this, but but the city map reminds me, you know, that that so the ballpark is located in Ward Seven. Is that accurate? Ballpark is located in Navy Yard, which is in Ward Six. And the Youth Baseball Academy is in Ward Seven, and and the, so that's sort of nearby, and that's a that's a part of town where the poverty rate is fifty percent or higher. Um, so it is uh, really one of the more underserved areas of the community. You know, we can skip ahead um, if you. I don't know if we want to go here, um, but because um, I can end with more than. Um, 
more than Obama with the with the ring. So this is me at the Youth Baseball Academy with former President Barack Obama. Uh, the Youth Baseball Academy has existed since 2013, and it provides after school and summer programming for youth third through eighth grade in Ward 7 and 8. So it is specifically designed to provide access to academic support, mentoring, food access, and the opportunity to learn how to be healthy. They learn the game of baseball, but they play a lot of other sports too. Um, so it's a safe, secure place. It's really enriching for the incredible children in Ward 7 and 8. Um, and we had the incredible privilege through a relationship that my boss had with his team for the president to come. He came about a year ago, last May, um, for the sole purpose of lifting up the great work that the academy does and the impact that it has on the community. That was it. There was no agenda except to lift up the work of our organization. He's done that around the country um, since leaving office. And we were just very fortunate to be one of the beneficiaries of, of his visits. And so um, I'll have to send you the video, Dylan, but there's a great clip of one of the kids. The kids didn't know, in fact, the staff didn't know. There were about three staff members of which I was lucky to be one who knew he was coming. And uh, we even had to arrange a photographer. And I just said, I'm gonna pay you to be there. And I can't tell you why, but I just need you to be on time. Um, and there's a great clip of one of the young boys running around the field saying, it's Obama, it's Obama, it's Obama. And to say that everybody was just tickled that he was there is an understatement. Um, he was every bit as kind and confident and cool as you would think he would be. And he took a he took great interest in understanding the work that the Academy does and how it serves the community. Um, he took his time to introduce himself and speak to every single person who was there that day. There were a couple hundred people there. He didn't miss, he almost had radar. He knew who he hadn't spoken to yet. Um, and he spoke to and engaged with every single person who was there. And he really took his time talking to the kids. He gathered up the kids for what we call team time. Kids take a knee um, and they listen to a coach and they give shout outs. And so that day, President Obama led team time and uh, really inspired the kids to know that their lives make a difference, their contributions to their community and beyond make a difference for them not to get discouraged by things that are happening in the world, which in comparison to today, um, seem even less so than they were then, um, but to the incredible children in the community around the academy, the circumstances that are stacked against them are tough. Um, and he gave them great hope and encouragement. And again, the sole purpose of his visit was to lift up our great work. So um, he and his team helped us amplify the visit. He shared it on his social channels, um, which are far greater than ours. And, uh, <laughs> he is uh, sort of the epitome of the word influencer. <laughs> he, he, we, had, we had the top influencer that day. Um, and it was wow. such a thrill. And uh, it really paid off to be friends with the photographer because I didn't even ask him to take pictures. I said this visit wasn't about me getting a picture. I didn't even think I would get to, to meet him. I, I helped arrange for him to be there and worked with his team on it. But it wasn't about me meeting him. It was about our kids uh, having the opportunity to see uh, a Black man um, who had reached the height of success talk to them and listen to them and inspire them. And he did that. But he also, as I said, 
met every single person. And so I, he shook my hand and he asked me, Kate, where are we going next? And so I was more than happy with my hands full and holding someone else's sunglasses to walk him to uh, the next destination. And fortunately, the photographer captured that. I didn't know he did. So um, you would think that would have been the highlight of my job so far, but I got to tell you, it wasn't, um, if you can believe it. <laughs> okay, well, now you peach my... Uh, um, I don't know if you want to skip back up to the other visuals or if you want to use them separately. Your choice, your choice. I, I, I love show and tell. If you think if you think those stories are this if this is a pretty you know epic moment, but yeah, happy you prepared them. Let's let's show people those also. I didn't mean to mess up your flow when I asked no, about that's okay. Um however you oh, oh this other way, uh back this up. Um this is just represents the work that we talked about earlier, Dylan, right. with the community response fund. Um, you know, I think what I would say in a time like this. Um, for any other professionals, but also people who are wondering what to do, it's okay to take a deep breath before you decide your next step um, in how to respond and support your community. It's overwhelming. And I said to my boss, first when COVID happened, and then in response to the widespread unrest following the very public nature of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey, I said to him in both of those occasions, these are clearly crises, um, but there's no first mover advantage for us. We don't have to be the first one to say something or do something. Let's take a deep breath. Let's understand what's happening. And let's, let's think about not only what we want to say, but really what we want to do and where we want to go with this, knowing that in both cases, these were not problems or issues that we could solve in full or that we could solve or, or aid in solving right away, um, but that these would take a, a long-term sustained attention for us to really have an impact on. And that was how we developed the Community Response Fund, which was to say, um, we're very quickly going to get into a place where COVID goes on for months and months, and we're all seeing that take place now. But at the time, it wasn't clear exactly what was going to happen. And I just said, let's not be the organization where we run out of support. Let's make sure that we are able to stay engaged with the community for as long as it takes. And the only way to do that is to have a long-term strategy. So for us, that was to stand up a fund. Um, populate the fund with some initial resources and then fundraise around it so that we would have the capital to be able to stay invested in the community over the long haul. And as I shared with you earlier, we've only dispersed about half of the capital that we have today and we're still fundraising. Um, so that allows us to continue to listen to and engage our nonprofit partners to understand where the need is and how we can continue to meet it. Um, we haven't lost focus. They haven't lost our attention. Baseball is back, hopefully, um, in July with teams reporting to spring training. So we're not just now turning our attention away from the community. We set up a fund that would allow us to stay engaged. This fund will be active for as long as it has to be to address food, health, and human services as a result of COVID-19. Um, and so it was a great debut for our brand to be able to, to really walk the walk. Um, that we intended to, but also for anyone who's overwhelmed or discouraged by not knowing what to do, 
just take a step back um, and give yourself time to figure out how you as an individual or your company or organization can deliver impact because the challenges related to COVID-19 and to dismantle systemic racism aren't going away anytime soon. So better to be in a position where you can sustain your attention and sustain your impact than to dip in now and not be prepared to stay engaged and walk away and feel like you didn't do enough because you weren't prepared to stay, to stay with it. To sweet, we like to say the Nats stay in the fight. Um, if you're not a Nats fan, that might be new to you, but uh, that is a phrase that our manager, Dave Martinez coined last year. Um, again, if you're not a Nats fan, you might not remember that uh, our season started off pretty rocky. We were 19 and 31. <laughs> we had like a, shred of a percentage chance of winning the World Series. And uh, Dave Martinez, um, who's just a walking philosopher, um, told the team, told the clubhouse, stay in the fight. Every game was a fight. Stay in the fight. Don't give up. You lose a game, you get back up and you fight the next day. Um, and that was very much our mentality with our philanthropy as well. You stay in the fight, but you have to be prepared to stay in the fight. You can't uh, get so exhausted and overwhelm your resources that you can't stay in the fight. So we're in the fight um, with the with our community for as long as it takes to address these issues. And again, so far we've raised almost five hundred thousand dollars. We're not done yet, um, and it's just a great opportunity for us to demonstrate how the Nationals can really serve as a philanthropic catalyst catalyst in the community, not something that, again, you would expect a professional sports team to do. Um, we're not only contributing our own funds, um, but we are using everything in our arsenal to raise more, more money and bring the community together in a way that can have greater impact. So again, if you had asked me even uh, three months ago what I thought I would be working on, this was not it. Um, but we were able to pivot to it quickly, but also, again, take our time. Our time at, at that point was, you know, a couple of weeks um, to, to just wrap our heads around where are we going? What do we want to do? But uh, we were thoughtful to set ourselves up for success in the long term and not just do a, uh, an initial donation or program out of the gate that we weren't, that we wouldn't be able to sustain. So not what the plan was for 2020. I know you've probably seen on Twitter the, you know, my plans and 2020 now it's a different picture and in a way in a way that's um that's true for nats philanthropies but in a way and it's not if you look at the the new logo that we helped developed and as i shared with you earlier this is exactly what we intend to be um and intended to be and we're building toward and so it's not what was in our plans but it's exactly who we are um and exactly where we want to be in a time of crisis well positioned to to support the community that is fantastic, Kate. That's just wonderful. I love it. But it's pretty cool to work for uh, the world champions. Uh, <laughs> again, if you had told me when I took the job that we would be in the World Series um, and that we would be the first team in history to win uh, five elimination games, we won a wild card game and we won the elimination game in all of our series except for the NLCS, I think, um, where we swept the Cardinals. If you had told me that, and then if you'd said we'd be the only team in history that would win four World Series road games, which has never happened, I would have said, it's crazy. It's crazy talk. Um, 
So it's cool enough to work at the ballpark. It's cool enough to be able to take my family to games. It's cool enough to have access to the field. It's cool enough to work with players to support their philanthropy. We're very fortunate to have a clubhouse of players and their families who are very active philanthropically and who are great partners to us and who we're proud to be partners to them. That would be enough, right? But no, there was, there was more. It was that this was a little bit of fate. Um, you know, I, I, my dad's advice applies here too. Um, this team made their own luck by staying in the fight. Uh, Dave Martinez also says, go one and zero every day. Um, win the day. That's oh. it. Win the day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Win the day. Um, and his team bought into that. Our organization has bought into that philosophy and our community bought into that philosophy. And so here we are. This is uh, just part of the, the great team that I get to work with. We are at Minute Maid Park in Houston celebrating a game one victory. Um, we had the great privilege to um, travel with the team to the first World Series game. Um, I got to go to the games at Nats Park too, but uh, it was a great thrill and privilege um, for the organization to send the staff to the first game. Um, so there we are, in, an improbable win uh, in game one, where we always came from behind somehow, um, but we did. And so that's some of our great team there at Minute Maid Park. So, so that was pretty cool. And then of course we won and um, the thrills didn't stop, um, had the great opportunity as well to be part of a championship parade. So I had been to a few championship parades, uh, but I had never been in one. Oh. So had the great thrill. This is such a DC picture. I took this on my phone and uh, thought it would be perfect to share. This is in front of the National Archives. That's See, your picture? That's my picture. Yeah. You know, oh. it's do on an iPhone these days, um, but uh, it's so gorgeous. It looks like a professional picture. So this is the view you had being in the parade. In the parade. So I'm on the street. I'm on uh, Constitution Avenue in D.C. Anyone familiar with D.C.? We're traveling down Constitution Avenue to the stage where they did a show um, at the end with the players, and uh, this was uh, our team, and we were able to bring all of our scholar athletes from the Youth Baseball Academy as well to be part of the parade. So um, this is us looking back at the fans who are gathered as we were walking the, the route. Again, I had been to championship parades, but I had never been in one, um, which was really cool. Um, really, really cool. So again, uh, meeting Obama was great, but <laughs> who knew a, a year later it would, uh, even better uh, than that. Didn't seem like it. And I was able to pick it up yesterday. Woo! Uh, I am now the, the recipient. I'll put it on and you can see how big it is. <laughs> oh, it fits you perfectly. <laughs> big is my hand, um, but uh, it's uh, it's a world championship ring. It, it carries my name on oh it. Oh my gosh. Oh, you got it. Can you, can you hold it a little closer to the camera? I don't know. I don't know if it's clear enough. Um, wow, it's huge. It's huge, um, but again, another privilege, not anything I expected um, or, or ever thought I would have, but um, yeah, I was on a call the other day and a few of us had it on. I'm like, oh, scratch my head. Uh, <laughs> to say. Um, you know, this, this will go in a safe, but uh, it just was such a thrill to not only experience uh, a world championship, 
uh, with my organization, but to then um, the generosity of the ownership family to uh, not only allow staff to be a part of the World Series experience, but then to to honor all of us in the work that we do with our own rings. Um, these are other than than you know carrying the name of a player and having a number. These are almost identical to to what the players receive as well. So it's a uh, um, you can't chart a path to this, Dylan. <laughs> You can't if you're if you're an aspiring Femba or you're a Femba or you're an Anderson. I never could have figured out how to get here um, in order yeah. to have the experience that I have um, and to have some incredible surprises like this along the way, which are not the reason I do what I do. But when you work hard, it's uh, it truly is icing on the cake. So I thought I would just uh, just scratch my head and show you this um, this new piece of jewelry that I just picked up yesterday and 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 what a thrill and maybe you can see this um i don't know if it's readable but it says go one and oh every day on the bottom here so uh, the philosophy of the team is is etched into this piece of history winning the day finishing the fight says fight finished on here as well um i, I shared the two pieces of great advice but certainly our great philosopher and manager dave martinez those two pieces of wisdom from him um, are also things that will stick with me. Um, and they've inspired a, an organization, they've inspired a team, they've inspired a city. Um, and that's really powerful. And the work that I do is an extension of that philosophy, which is really cool um, to be able to demonstrate how the entire organization can stay in the fight and win the day every day, do everything we can to win the day for our community. Um, we're, we're a part of that and that's really cool. This is a world champion interview and you're living a world champion life. Well, Dylan, I'm so grateful. And um, I think I said this off camera earlier, but I just want to go on record that this is an orange shirt and not a red shirt because I am a true Bruin and I would never, never. wear a red shirt. Um, but I'm not sure how it's going to translate on video. Um, how do you measure the ROI? Um, I, I jokingly held this up when you asked that. This is cool. It's one of the coolest things I've ever had. Um, but it's not what I'm proud of. Um, I think for me, I am most proud of, and I measure the ROI not by anything that I've achieved, but on looking back at my career thus far and knowing that everywhere I've been, I've been able to add value and unlock my own opportunity. And so even jobs that didn't work out and I knew didn't have a future for me, I still look back every single one of them. And there is something truly at every single job I've had that has been a once in a lifetime, once in a career opportunity. Every job I've had, just looking for ways that I can add value and in doing so, having an unlock opportunity, that's the ROI. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, some of the stats about FEMBA salary. I, I was interested in my salary. This wasn't my starting salary, but my salary when I left Anderson and, and what it is now. It's, it's, and I've never, ever taken a job for uh, a salary. Um, it's 122% higher than it was when I left. And I'd never have once made a career choice based on how much money I was going to make ever. Um, you also don't have to worry and measure your career in ROI on your salary too, and worry so much about your specific salary at any one job 
take the job for the job, take the job because you believe you're going to have impact and you believe you're going to um, derive personal value from it. Don't take it for, for a salary because then you'll be chasing the money and you won't be chasing the opportunity anymore. Um, who do I have to thank? Absolutely. My parents, um, they always allowed me to um, pursue what I wanted to, they helped me develop my confidence. They've supported me every step of the way. Um, so I'm so grateful to them. They modeled the behavior for me as a professional and a parent um, that is so valuable. And I know not everybody has access to, so I'm, I'm grateful for them. Um, and I think the only person more proud of my career than me is my husband. Um, he's never once, we've moved around for his career, but he's never once made me feel like my career was less than or not important. And by being open to that and being flexible to support him, it's open doors that again, if I had said, what do I want? I would have said, let's, I want to stay at Disney. We're not moving. I had said that. Right. And that would have been a great thing. Um, yeah. but I wouldn't have had, again, I have had more, once in a lifetime, once in a career experience since I left Disney than I had at Disney. And I never would have guessed that. And so, um, you know, certainly grateful to him for supporting my career always and fully. Um, and then my kids keep it real. Yeah. <laughs> um, they keep it real. And um, I'm, uh, I, I now take jobs that uh, will make them proud of, of what, I, what I do. I am one of a team of many. I'd be remiss in, in not acknowledging that I have tremendous colleagues um, who support every single one of the programs and initiatives that I lead. And that's part of what also makes the job really special. It's people who I learn from and people who are in the trenches of doing this good work and knowing that you can do it with people that uh, you trust, but also that you like, uh, is, uh, is really special as well. Wouldn't be any fun if I didn't like people yeah. at work. It'd be a lot of work and great impact, but, uh, no fun. We have a lot of fun. Never thought I would say this, but I will go Nats. It's baseball. Season. So God, this is a, you know, an LA audience and I'm just going to say it to go Nats. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> my World Series ring off now that I've said that. That's, those oh. are my words. Go Nats. <laughs> Go Nats. Oh, I love it. I'm grateful for your time. Thank um, you so much. And the team that I we can't see, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Samantha, Darcy, and Drew, and everybody it takes to bring these drive time podcasts to reality. This is Kate Greenberg, class of 2010, triple Bruin. She's accrued three incredible degrees, plus a husband who got a couple degrees. This is a Bruin love story. This is an incredible career enhancer changer, as you said, story. Um, this is a follow your passion. This is a let yourself be contributed to. Um, this is what it looks like when you lead a life of significance. So I, I just, I'm inspired. I'm a little tired. It's been a long day, a lot of Zoom calls, but this, these last couple hours on Zoom with you just make the whole day worth it. And this is why I work so hard, too. And um, this is Kate Greenberg, the Chief Marketing and Development Officer for the Washington Nationals Philanthropies, UCLA Anderson graduate, 2010, triple Bruin, wonderful human being. And Kate, just thank you so much for, for being so generous with the telling of your story, peaks and valleys. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dylan. It was a pleasure. And I hope it inspired even just one person would, would make this time worth it.
I'm a very proud Bruin and a very proud Anderson alum. So uh, Bruins are excellent in everything that they do. And so every single Bruin who goes through Anderson has endless potential that they can contribute to the community, to their organization, to the world. So I'm a very, very proud Bruin. You don't, you don't end up with this many Bruin degrees uh, and not be, and not be proud. So it's my pleasure. And I'm grateful to you for the opportunity to tell my story. My pleasure. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Stay tuned. We'll have another wonderful story in the not too distant future, but for now, Please uh, rewind this, listen to the second half of this again. There are some gems in here that you can use to make your career really sing. So thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone.